and welcome to Blue Royalty, a London's Blue podcast dedicated to the Chelsea Women's team. I'm your host, Jesse Parker Humphreys, joined by Abdullah. Abdullah, how's it going, my man? Good, good, good. Just counting down the days so that I can go on holiday and I don't have to do any work. So You are not far off. I'm very close, very close. But with, you know, otherwise all good, getting excited. And we're here to talk about the player that hopefully I'll be able to see in about 10 days time, so... Let's go. Yeah, yeah. So we are today going to do a little bit of Amira Ramirez deep dive. We're going to talk through sort of her career so far. I know you guys will have seen her play already at this point, um, but we'll we'll talk a little bit about where we think she fits in with this team both now and in the future, because this is potentially, if all the add-ons are met, world record signing, and it feels like it's kind of got under the radar to a certain extent because it came in so quick and she's into the team straight away and we kind of want to give it the analysis we think it deserves. But we are going to start off with the Champions League draw, which took place today um, at midday UK time. Jodie Taylor was doing the draw. They always have to insert something Arsenal in there. But anyway, that's the way it was. Um, we have drawn Ajax in the quarterfinals. Potentially what is more of interest and focus, although we do have to beat Ajax to get to this point, is that we will likely play Barcelona in the semi-finals. Yes, we may be running it back, guys. Um, it is inevitable at this point. They are unavoidable pretty much in the Champions League. So let's start though by talking about Ajax. I'm really excited for this draw because I really, really like this Ajax team. Um, I interviewed their head of women's football before they qualified for the knockout stages. They're a really cool club who have brought through a lot of talented players um, for any WSL watchers. They sort of helped develop Vicky Palova, who's now at Arsenal. And I think my feelings about this draw, Abdullah, is that realistically... Chelsea should, over two legs, be any of those second-place teams. And for me, there wasn't really, like, one standout team in terms of who was better or who wasn't better. But I do think some people feel a little bit nervous about Ajax because they came through the group of death. So they went through at the expense of Roma and Bayern Munich. And it's kind of fair enough to be like, they've shown that they are a team who can cause bigger sides in inverted commas, depending on where you see Roma and Bayern Munich issues. Yeah, for sure. And um, I will I will say that there was a, quite a contrast in both. The, I mean, the Bayern Munich games were close, right? I mean, there's a 1-0 and a 1-1, which is a very good result against Bayern. But PSG and Roma were kind of contrasting games, right? You win 2-0 and 2-1, and then you lose 3-1 and 3-0. So it's almost like it's a flip of the coin. You could get the IX that's going to beat you. 2-0, or you're going to get the Ajax, you're going to smash like 4-1, four, four, right? You know, it's, you could get either or. And I guess the home and away factor makes um, makes makes a difference. Um, I think that, to be fair, I do think that Roma and PSG, particularly PSG in the last couple of years, have been very much an up and down team where you're going to find them playing amazing football for a couple of games. And then suddenly they're just going to play like really drab, get football they don't know how to play suddenly they've lost the game like 2-0 or and you're like where did this performance come from so um while I think for Ajax it was a great win to get against all three sides especially at home which I think has to put us on notice in terms of all right Chelsea have to be careful 
I do think that Chelsea are a quality above Bayern, PSG, and Roma overall. So which, to me, thinks we should ideally be beating Roma semi-comfortably. But then again, I'm not going to write Roma off because if you can... If they had only won one of those games, or maybe two of them, let's say they beat Roma and Bayern, and they lost both games to PSG, and maybe they lost that Bayern away game, then then maybe you could say, yeah, fine, it was a one-off. But three positive results at home against two, I leave Roma on, on the up now as well, three quality-ish teams, you know, second one and a half tiers, Um, I think is, I think it's something to be wary about. And I think potentially the what second hardest hardest second place opponent we possibly could have faced you know if you really want to argue it that way so i guess you got to beat uh beat some good some some play uh, some teams here and there to get through to the final yeah i think i think it's really interesting the kind of position ajax are in sort of as you made reference to they won every home game and didn't win a single away game and actually look at them the aggregate scores Bayern were the only team they had a better aggregate score on I think the other thing that's interesting is Ajax aren't having an amazing league season by their standards now this is in part because FC20 which is where our our friend Avika Kaptein is um, are having an amazing season they're currently top having won all 14 of their matches played Ajax have drawn three and lost one so they have they're very, very far off the pace. And I think this is partially maybe what's motivated the fact that they're parting ways with their manager, Susan Racker, at the end of the season, but also maybe reflects the fact of how much they've focused on the Champions League. The other kind of interesting Ajax stuff is even beyond these group stage fixtures where we've seen them play, they've also looked good in games in the past in sort of qualifying. So People might remember they played Arsenal in qualifying, not la- not this year, but the year before, and they only very narrowly lost that. So I think it was a 2-2 draw at Meadow, Meadow Park, and then Viv Miedemar scored a winning goal um, away in Amsterdam. So they're definitely a side who don't have fear about coming up against top teams. But like I said, there's not the sense... This is a game where if Chelsea lost it, it would still be a surprise. So we can do some more, definitely do some more Ajax sort of analysis as we get closer to the games. The games are going to be played at the end of March. Um, this is what Hayley said on Ajax in her presser earlier. Really, really good team. We played them in a preseason game last year. I was impressed with them. A great young group coming through who thoroughly deserve to be where they are. It's as tough a game as we could expect for a court final, but it is at this stage and it's important for us going away from home in the first leg. We need to use all of our experience because Ike's are proven against the top teams already. They really deserve to be where they are, which I think is about pretty standard. Let's talk, though, about the rest of the draw because I'm going to caveat this whole section with saying, obviously, you do have to beat Ajax. It's not a guaranteed thing, but we do have the rest of the draw, so we may as well talk about it. Um, the full quarterfinal draw, by the way, is um, Benfica are playing Leon, Hecken are playing PSG, and Fran are playing Barcelona. And that is who, the winner of that tie is who we will face in the semifinals. How do you feel about this? I... I mean, at the end of the day, I wasn't, I wasn't like, I was like, okay, fine, we're playing, potentially playing Barcelona in the semifinal. But I'm like, what was it going to be? Barcelona or Leon? You're going to play, at this point, you're going to play 
potentially you're going to play both, right? If Lyon beat, you know, Benfica and then they beat PSG, who you assume we will reach the semifinal and they get to the final. And let's say we beat Barcelona and, and uh, Ajax, you're going to play Lyon anyway. You'd have played Barca and Lyon to win the Champions League. So in a way, I was like, it doesn't matter because you're going to play either or team at some point. Yes. Would you have preferred to maybe play Lyon in the semifinal versus Barcelona? Potentially. But then again, if you beat Barcelona in the semifinal, you kind of go into the final as kind of heavy favorites to an extent because you're like, you just beat the, the reigning champions and the most dominant team in women's football. So you go in with that confidence into a final against a team that's, you know, strong, but, you know, you have that confidence going in. So there are pros and cons to it, but I wasn't like, oh my God, we've got to play Barcelona. This is a disaster. Like, well, we're going to have to play one of them, but one, if not both anyway. So let's get Barcelona out of the way first. And then we go into, into the final. Yeah. I mean, I was sitting there during the draw, like Harry Potter in the first film where he's got the sorting hat on his head and he's like not Slytherin not Slytherin and I was like not Barcelona not Barcelona it didn't work for me didn't work it worked for Harry it didn't work for me neither vibes yeah but obviously now it's happened so now I have to find like the copium uh first bit of copium is Barcelona lovely place to go so I'll be enjoying that um did Leon last year can't say I super cared for it done Paris don't really care for that either so that's that's the first bit of copium second bit of copium is this draw is slightly different from last year's draw in two key aspects firstly Barcelona will not be playing at Camp Nou because it's being redeveloped so they are playing it's called like Monduich I don't actually know how you say it but it's the Olympic Stadium basically in Barcelona they're actually going to play their quarterfinal at the Johan Cruyff which is their like smaller ground but they the suggestion from Spanish media is they play a semi-final at the big ground. But also, crucially, the second leg would be at home for us at Stamford Bridge. Am I reading too much into thinking this gives us not an advantage, but like is a boost from the position where we were last year? Because I think last year it was very hard because it felt like we had to play a game plan that kept us in the match, in the tie, before we went to Camp Nou. And then at Camp Nou, we were able to sort of express ourselves a little bit more because you get the draw whereas this feels like we can play that more conservative game plan and then maybe go for it a bit more in front of our own friends at Stamford <laughs> own friends in front of our own fans at Stamford Bridge and our friends and our friends I mean you, you could call our everybody friends, friends. friends. yes <laughs> listen we're all we're all one big happy family yeah. everyone's everyone's a friend at Stamford Bridge, so it's all good. Every Chelsea fan is a friend, friend. of mine. Oh, I love it. Uh, I'm just going to go to every... I'm going to go to Kingsman. We're all friends. We're not fans. We're all friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. No, I, th- I think and I think that I think that, that's fair. And I think not playing at the camp is possibly a good advantage for us because anyway, while they may play at the bigger stadium, uh, whichever one that ends up being, it's still not the camp. It's not 90,000 fans. I mean, like 2,000 pocket of Chelsea fans and then like 88,000 Barcelona fans. In this case, at least that way, playing in a slightly comparatively smaller stadium, going up against Barcelona. I think there is potential for Chelsea to be able to play that 
play that first leg a little bit maybe more conservatively, hold it, and then you have the chance in the second leg, especially at home with the support and the crowd. And if Chelsea can keep it tight in the first leg, going into the second one and and giving themselves every... Basically, if you can replicate, to an extent, the first leg result this season, you go into Stamford Bridge with a huge advantage in the sense that, okay, we're only in that in that scenario. One nil down, we can go back. We're at home. We can create chances. We can do something with the home support and everything under the lights. And I think that plays a huge factor. I, whatever, whatever it's worth, when you're playing at home, crunch game, second leg of a semifinal, doesn't matter who you're playing, and whichever away team comes 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 home, I think it's I think it's it's a neck it's it's very very difficult to get and we've seen some iconic nights at the bridge in general so I mean why not bring in another one and yeah so I think it's perfect that the second leg would be at Stamford Bridge so uh, I'm all in for that. Yeah, my other my other bit of copium I think is that I would prefer almost to play Barcelona in a semi final than in a final and I know some people will say. Well, it's harder to beat them over two legs than one. But I do think playing them over two legs means they have to be potentially a little bit more conservative. And we as a team, I think, have better m- memories and associations with playing them in the semi-final because we did get pretty close compared to the final, which was obviously disastrous. And I think I would feel a lot more worried about the final rematch than a semi-final rematch because like even just to take for example the way Barcelona themselves performed when they had to play Lyon again in that Chirin final having been totally battered by them um, a couple of years before and they'd actually won a Champions League in that time so I think for us to go back and potentially play a final for the second time in our history and for it to be against the same team that would maybe make me a little bit more stressed Um, and I do think if we were to obviously win against Barcelona, it would be an incredible psychological boost heading into a final. Um, so that's my roundup of why I'm glad we've got Barcelona in the semifinals. No, I actually don't. Really, I think I'd still have preferred a different team, but I think it is what it is and got to deal with it. And I think there there are lots of different ways of looking at it um, than going beyond just the idea of, oh, you know, like it's impossible from this point. Rowdy is... We were going to have to beat Barcelona at some point, realistically, if you want to win the Champions League. And semi-finals are a good a place to do it as elsewhere, I guess. Um, all right, let's take a, a break here then. And we will come back and have a little bit of a chat about Myra Ramirez. So obviously we've had Myra Ramirez at Chelsea now for a couple of weeks. We have seen her start once against Everton. We saw her come on against Brighton. For anyone who sort of doesn't remember, this is potentially a world record fee if all the add-ons get paid. And it sounds like the add-ons are pretty achievable, like her sort of playing like 30% of Chelsea matches or something crazy low. Um, But let's take a little bit of a run down through Ramirez and her career so far. Let's kick off, Abdullah, by like, um, talk to us a little bit about like your perceptions of Ramirez before she joined Chelsea. Where did she sort of figure for you in world football? It's it's interesting because I think most of the name that she made was probably, and I think this is for for most of us was that she for Colombia obviously I saw her I saw her first um in and around actually my if I'm being really honest I had heard a lot about Myra Ramirez 
as a player, who she is, a really good striker. And, you know, in, in, in Liga EFA, there's a, there's a couple of strikers that stand out in terms of the top scores, right? When you look at when you look at the league, you look at Barcelona and then Real Madrid just because of the brand that they have and you see the players and you know them. But then when you start going a tier down, you only really hear peppered in about one or two, three players. And those are the ones that usually, so weirdly, like you hear at the end of the season, oh, and the second highest scorer is XYZ player from like, Y team, you're like, wait, wait, what? Like, how has this player playing for the fifth place team scored like 20 goals, right? And Myra Ramirez, Alba Redondo, these sort of players have been kind of in and around. Amigur Sariegi, another one. These have kind of been players in and around that bracket of like second tier top quality strikers after Barcelona. And Ramirez is one of them. And 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 I thought, okay, fine. Um, it's an interesting player. Obviously, first onto the scene for Colombia in in the World Cup. I mean, even before then, obviously the Copa America and all that, where where they lost. But like, I think realistically, for most people, it was the it was the the World Cup that really brought it to light. And I think what was most of what was most fascinating for me in the World Cup, and admittedly, I hadn't watched much of it before that. A few games here and there when I was doing research for my Barcelona book was the fact that. When she played out on the wider areas and she kept drifting out with with uh, Linda Caicedo kind of playing this free role coming off the wing, coming inside and playing there, I was really surprised because I was like, wait a second, she looks like a very atypical, you know, hold up striker, yet she's making these movements that aren't typical to a striker, what what she should be, right? She looks like something else, but she actually plays like something else. And that really caught my eye. And then it was kind of from there, I was like, okay, this is this is a really, really useful player. And you don't really have too many profiles about her. I actually can't think of another player that's very similar to her in profile because of the way she plays and 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 the way she holds up the ball and in, in, in very much of a target man-esque way. So I was like, interesting player. I don't know how this translates anywhere else, but definitely breakout star really going to do well and I think I thought maybe in a couple of years she ends up maybe slowly reaching the top but I didn't think it would accelerate this fast that Chelsea would go be going in for her this quick if anything I'll be really honest I thought someone like Alba Redondo or Amayor Sarayegi would have been picked up first by a top side and not Ramirez so I'm proved wrong yeah I I think all of that is is really good I think definitely what's worth picking out is exactly that bit you were saying about how the player Ramirez looks like she is, it isn't necessarily the player she actually is. And that's because she's very, very tall. She is very physical, but she is very nimble. And, you know, obviously it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. She grew up in South America. She grew up in Colombia and you start playing like futsal. So you're a lot more like you're technically drilled from a really young age, basically. Whereas I feel like sometimes in England, for example, if you're really tall, it's like, okay, you're going to be like the target man. And you're not necessarily going to develop those same kind of skills that get developed in like kind of other um, different environments. Um, yeah, the World Cup. So I, I really enjoy watching Levante. So I, I'd watched quite a bit of them um, last season and the season before. And then obviously the World Cup really kind of was a, a breakup moment, breakout moment for her. Obviously, Colombia did really, really impressively. Um, I think did a lot better than lots of people expected them to do. And Caicedo is kind of the, the player in that team who I think a lot of people went into the tournament thinking was going to shine. And I think Ramirez was the one who kind of took people by surprise in a, a really exciting way. 
So in terms of her sort of journey to Chelsea and being on Chelsea's radar, it seems to be that like Chelsea had looks at both Ramirez and Redondo, who she kind of played with in this sort of front two, but like quite a flexible front two for Levante. Um, but then with obviously Sam Kerr's injury and wanting to get a striker in, that's why they pushed to get Ramirez. And we've talked a bit before, I think, about Levante's um, different uh, financial problems, which sort of maybe impacted this as well. Let's talk a bit more about the way she plays, though. So just going to read some quotes from a Colombian journalist who was who was talking about her from like kind of his experiences watching her grow up. So he said, Ramirez has the physical attributes to be a good number nine. She can stay up top and be a target, but her footwork surprises a lot of people. She can turn on you very quickly. Ramirez finds space to shoot and create opportunities around the box and is comfortable playing on either wing. She's not a static number nine, so you have to be aware of her at all times. She wants to be on the play, on the ball and play. And I think we've already seen this, Abdullah, right? We, we spoke about this after the Everton game. Like this is someone who is willing to peel off peel off defenders and pick up the ball and carry the ball. And I think her ability to carry is one of the things that's always most endeared me to her because I think it makes her so versatile in terms of where she plays on the pitch. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, just, just because of that footwork alone, you can she opens up so much tactical variety in a team like you don't have to shoehorn her into a start you know a central striker role you can start her there as a position on the pitch right and you're having a front three or a front four but she doesn't necessarily have to stay there she can very much peel off onto the right peel off onto the left uh and in some universe if you really wanted to you could even start her out on those wider areas and kind of come inside and play as a two and i think that in itself for me i think is so is so useful and I think it's just going to throw so many people off. I mean, the amount of times we saw in the Everton game that the Everton faux wingbacks, DMs, central midfielders, whether they wanted to use as wingbacks, they they couldn't handle Ramirez's pace. And I think it's almost as if every single time she picked up the ball with her back to goal, they thought, okay, we've got this covered. We'll hold her off. She's not going to go off that quick. And every single time she would turn and run past them, turn and run past. And it was like, the same predictable move each time, but they couldn't handle the physicality combined with the speed. And I think for me, that's the biggest asset that she has. Because she can do that, it just means that teams almost have to start doubling up on her on that side. If you start doubling up on a central striker who's going wide for you, how much space are you going to be opening up in the middle? And I think that just sort of variety and that sort of tactical you know, not even dependency, but that that versatility, I think, for me, opens up and it almost synergizes perfectly with the players that we had. If you look at like a Frank Kirby, Macario that will come in later, uh, you know, LJ, I think these three specifically are benefit are going to benefit so much because they love both running with the ball. But if you take Ramirez, who can hold the ball, bring players to her, and is excellent at playing in behind, whether it's running in, making the cross, or linking it up to another player, which I think we need to see a little bit more of that link-up play directly as passes, more so than running in behind. If she has a good game there, oh, then you're going to have Kirby, Macario, and LJ picking up the pieces from those link-ups and have all the space in the world to dribble through and then kind of maybe go, go into a shot-creating action. So for me, that's where I think just being able to turn, move, hold up play... Is, is a fascinating thing from, from Ramirez. 
Yeah, and I think it, the numbers sort of really bear that out in quite an interesting manner. She obviously did score a ton of goals last season, um, and I think she is someone who's good in front of goal. But like, if you look at sort of her creative numbers, they're where she really stands out. So her expected assist is 0.3, which puts her in the 99th percentile. That's per 90, 99th percentile for all forward shot creating actions, also 3.69. That puts her in the 94th percentile. So I think what's interesting about Ramirez as a player is she's not like a pure or like a really pure goal scorer I guess maybe like her or Bunny Shaw who I'd be like their number one strength is taking and scoring chances I think Ramirez like has the ability to do that well but it feels like her real like sort of exceptional level comes almost from doing exactly what you're talking about being almost creating that space for other players and having not only that having the ability to then execute where you've moved to and like how you're going to get the ball into the players around you. And I think that really like suits Chelsea well in terms of the kind of finishers they've got with sort of LJ, Erin, um, you know, even players like Guru who are going to make those moves into the box. But also I think that is what we've kind of seen so far is we've seen some really like bright moments from Ramirez but she obviously doesn't understandably have the relationships yet with those players to know where they are she can pick them out um effectively I think the one thing that's kind of interesting um and I want to touch on as a like a little bit of a not a negative per se but you know I think it's important when we're talking about players a sign that we're, we're realistic I think it's very easy in like a scousing world to be like this player's amazing and everything she does is fantastic. And that's not true. All players have things they can improve on and get better on. And I think with Ramirez, it kind of comes with that defensive work rate. I think Ramirez, by all accounts, is somebody who likes to be in positions where she can be, she can get the ball and she can run with it and she can be effective. And as a result, this isn't necessarily the player who's going to be like, super leading the press I don't think um and I think that will be really interesting to see how maybe it develops at Chelsea um Kerr obviously is someone who does like a lot of off-ball work and I think Ramirez obviously has like the physical attributes to do that as well like she's a very fit player she's a very intense player but it just and I don't know how much of this is the fact that she's played for smaller teams in the past though whereby you really want to leave her like available so that if you turn the ball over she's ready to go and I think that's the thing that that for me Abdullah I feel like she can do it she has the like all the stuff at her disposal to do it that's what will be really interesting to see if if she develops more of at Chelsea that sort of defensive leading yeah and and I think when in in a sense I think if you're playing in, in a smaller team there is going to be a little bit more setting off like you said It'll be interesting to see how much Emma Hayes develops Ramirez because while they need her to get off the ground running, does the question I think also comes in is how much does she want to actually coach Ramirez? Because we all know that she's leaving in six months. So is 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 Emma going to take the responsibility of of changing Ramirez into a Chelsea player under Emma Hayes? Or is she going to play her to her own strengths where she'll teach her how to maybe press from the front a la Sam Kerr, et cetera, et cetera, and, and, and ingrain those basic principles? 
uh, and then let the next person come in and kind of mold her, mold them into whatever they want her to be. And I think probably that's going to be the latter, but I think well, I think there'll be a mix, a little bit of both, where it's going to be the the MAH Chelsea style to an extent of being able to press, because again, like we said, she's deceptively quick and mobile. And I think there is going to be, and I think the fact that she has played for a smaller team, just to kind of put it in there, is going to help the fact that I think she will work a little bit harder in the pressing because she's so used to not having the ball and being off for so long. And like you said, almost in a sense, waiting for the ball to come to her when she does get service to kind of go in behind, that'll serve in good stead here because she's used to not having the ball. So she's going to press and go into these into these key areas to kind of press in. I think it's just about the discipline of being able to understanding when to press and when to go and when not to go. And I think that will come with games, that will come with time and and that will come with learning because it's I don't I mean if I don't if I remember correct yeah there's no one that speaks Spanish in the front line if it was the defender and if Hannah Hampton starting you still have a little bit of the Spanish lingo going on right she speaks Spanish she's I don't know how good her Spanish is right now but she can speak Spanish but up front it's a bit more of sign language and for, I mean I think Emma Hayes said in the press conference like Shukin Niskin Micah Hamano and Myra it sounds like very much like one of those jokes where Three people walk in and then, you know, they're all sitting together and then they all talk. So um, it's kind of going to be that thing where she, there, people are going to have to point sign language and tell her to push and, and go. So I think that may make the development of that pressing a little bit longer. But I do think that she will adapt to that because she's already used to not having the ball and, and being able to just kind of go in and just, okay, fine, we need you to start pressing. Um, it's just a matter of how much can she how quickly she can pick it up and how much she actually does. And because if it ends up not suiting her game, you then have to switch it again tactically to kind of compensate for her lack of pressing and maybe bring in a number 10 that will press even more for you. Kind of like a Conor Gallagher who will just literally your job is off the ball pressing. You're just going to make everything happen off the ball. Mm. Which of course is something that you, someone like Aaron could do, but obviously, yeah, you yeah. then sacrifice other players as a result, which is kind of one of the hard things. I think it's pretty clear, though, where sort of Ramirez in this season is going to play as basically the first choice central striker. But obviously what's kind of fascinating about this deal is it's a lot of money to pay for somebody who might not be the first choice central striker in a year's time. So we will take another ad break here and then we will come back and talk a little bit about Ramirez's future at Chelsea. Obviously, we are in a sort of caveat Chelsea era because Emma Hayes is leaving, in case you missed that. And we don't yet know who the new manager is. And even if we did know who the new manager was, it would be very hard, I think, for us to surmise where and where they see the squad as being at and who they like and how they want to play everyone. But it's worthwhile talking about Ramirez and how she fits in for the future because Chelsea have a lot of attackers and they've signed her to a very long-term deal so let's do a little bit of a sort of thought experiment on how this Chelsea's attack develops um and I'm going to say we are assuming that Sam stays last thing we heard was the sort of contract was signed not seen anything else so not sure what's happening there but I'm going to assume she is staying so potentially when Sam comes back hopefully you know by the end of this year maybe be nice to see him before the end of 2024 hopefully also in this time Kat Macario is back to full fitness, hoping we're going to see her a bit before Sam, at the very least. We potentially then have Myra, Mia, Sam and Kat as all players who 
want to play as nines or can play as nines, maybe I should say. Kat is an interesting one because she's done a little bit of both. She's kind of implied that she want to be a nine, but she's normally been seen as a 10. That's like kind of where her real successes have come. Obviously, that's kind of complicated by the fact that LJ wants to play as the 10 and presumably has that spot sort of nailed down. Sam's going to play as a nine and Mia's going to play as a nine. And Myra maybe can play all across the front three. So we do have options here, Abdullah, but how do you see this sort of starting to figure out? Take me to this time next year when we've just had the Champions League draw <laughs> for the knockout stages. What sort of front lineup are you envisaging as first choice for Chelsea? And we're defending champions, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're defending yeah, champions. We're defending champions, Correct. fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just making sure <laughs> it's a good future to have. Um, it's a great problem to have considering the four players. And if we break it down, Mia's probably the only one who is kind of wedged into playing as a number nine. She's like the least versatile positionally of the four players, five players that you've mentioned. So you can pretty much say second, maybe third choice number nine in this scenario, right? So just keep her there. Now with Sam, you would think that Sam, when she comes back and if she kind of picks up where she left off, she's still going to be number one choice, right? So if we're playing 4-2-3-1, let's just say 4-2-3-1 is the system, you've got nine nailed is Sam, and then you've got the other three positions, four positions. Now at Leon, when 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 Kat came to Leon, she came into the reputation of being a number nine. Now she's been in this position before where she kind of had a someone called Arda Hagerberg in front of her playing as a number nine. And you ain't taking that spot from Arda Hagerberg, so you're going to have to reinvent yourself. And she kind of made herself into a number 10. In this case, it depends on when you know on how that how that part goes and what the new coach wants to do. Maybe they want to play two up top. I don't know, but assuming it's a four two three one, I think that there will be rotation between Sam and LJ, say Cat and LJ, in the number ten. Or I can see one of them maybe going out into the wider areas and maybe playing a bit more of a narrower narrower. Um, front four and I think in this case you potentially are sacrificing JRK on the right assuming she's still there to accommodate one of them right and then on the left side uh you assume it's 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 Guru now with Myra it's interesting I think that will come down to how well she adapts and kind of what um role she ends up adapting this season and how well she does it because the thing is I would not mind having Myra on the left and Sam up front. But then if you're going to play Cat on the right, you're just going to have four players all vying for the same position in the same space. And you can't have that. There's no, literally, two is fine. I call it the Arsenal four. problem. I yeah. call it the Arsenal problem. That's <laughs> exactly. how they play at the moment. It doesn't I work. Know. It doesn't work. You can't have four than that. Unfortunately, I think you need Guru slash JRK to bring the balance. So, if I'm being brutally honest, if I have to go now, I think it's Sam up front and either Kat or LJ in as the 10 with Guru and then maybe Kat or LJ on the right-hand side because at the bare least, you need Guru's with on the left, right? So for me, that's where, where I, I see it. And I think Myra is just based on how well she adapts and game by game, you see whether it's Sam or Myra great impacts up to have but for me it's sam 
I want to say LJ Cat Cat and or LJ Cat as the ten, and then Girl on the left. That's probably my front four uh, going into this time next year. It's a lot of players and it's a lot of configurations and yeah. it's going to be, I kind of feel, I'm just not sorry for the new manager, but like, it is an interesting worry in some ways that like, we know that this is very, very good at um, keeping players happy and motivating players and making it be worthwhile in terms of fighting for a place. But when you look at the list of players available, you know, like, We've not even really mentioned JRK in that conversation, even though she's had a fantastic season playing on the right. We've not talked about Aggie Beaver-Jones, even though we're hoping she's going to kick on and play more minutes. We've not talked about Fran Kirby, who's obviously out of contract at the end of the season. So there are a lot of players uh, sort of competing and going in for those positions. I am intrigued as to what Myra's signing means for Mia, because even though right now, it makes sense to have Fischl as the sort of backup striker to Ramirez. Mia's kind of the player where I'm like, I don't know how this all comes out in the wash with Kerr sticking around because Mia's the other player who I'm like, mm, I don't know really know where else you can play other than in that number nine role because she's such a pure striker. Um, so I definitely think that will be interesting. And obviously, like, who knows? But it's fascinating to think about, like, maybe what signings were pursued and thought of based on not necessarily knowing whether Sam was going to stay or not. So that that definitely, like, would love to have been a fly on the wall in those conversations. Um, but I think it's going to be really, really fascinating. I guess maybe the thing that will maybe help us figure out this puzzle piece, Abdullah, will be Macario and sort of where we see her play when she comes back. If you're Hayes... Where are you putting her in soon? You know, because we sort of heard it should be after the international break. Are you giving her a go at the nine at all now we've got Ramirez there? Because the other interesting option towards the end of the season would be to potentially have, for example, LJ at the 10, Guru on the left, Kat up top, and Myra on the right, with JRK sort of as your... I'm going to run at tired defenders thing. Do you think that's something that we could see this year? We could. That That's definitely a possibility. And, and I think um, there is going to be a lot of changes around. But I think the most important thing is I think there are just way too many games coming up for there not to be cat tried at number nine. Because while Myra is going to come in and play as probably the first choice number nine right now, with me official also there, I think there are going to be games where Cat's going to be perfect to play up front because, again, I, I I know what we just said, but when you have Mia and when you have Myra, you still have two big strikers that can play up front. Whereas Cat's a bit more nimble, a bit more agile. I know it goes with the name, but like she, you know, she's kind of going to go in and out, and maybe it's a little bit quicker than than the two of them. And I think she just gives you a different type of poacher. Uh, poacher style, style striker who can also link up play and I think in games where teams are going to be playing a high line let's say it's against an Arsenal or something or someone like that then Cat almost is perfect to be able to play on the shoulder and just kind of run in behind um, for me it'll be interesting because I would love to see the Cat LJ link up because I actually think that could potentially be a fire link up and I think that will probably be one of the better ones that we'll see in I can even see a, 
a universe where while Cat's playing as a 10 and say LJ's playing on the right-hand side, LJ has the free role to kind of come in and those two interchanging positions with Myra up front as like the glue to put them together, I think I think that could really work. So I can see a combination of Myra, Cat, LJ, and Guru as your front four. Guru to kind of be your, I'm going to run at people and kind of be in and out what you talked about, JRK. But on the right, you have these two kind of interchanging positions going in and around. And you have Myra, who's someone who's, I'm great at holding the ball. I can turn in wide to give you both the space to kind of come into the central areas, hold the ball, give you those quality crosses in, and cutbacks and kind of work from there. So I can kind of see that being being a thing and, and being a really, really interesting combination to try. Yeah, there's so many different options. I think it's really exciting to see how it plays out. And I think it's useful that you can sort of pick players on form and, and have that sort of competition there. Um, but there's so many options even between the end of the season, even before we look at potentially Kerr coming back to full fitness. It also allows us, obviously, um, to take time with Kerr coming back. And there's no, there's going to be no need to rush because the pieces are hopefully in place to, to play well without her. But that wraps us up for today. Um, thank you everybody for listening we have coming up uh, Chelsea Sunderland which is tomorrow evening so that's Wednesday evening in the Conti Cup quarterfinals Palace visit in the FA Cup on Sunday the 11th um, then we've got City on Friday the 16th that's when Abdullah's here give him a shout if you want to say hi yes. then it's the international break uh, we're going away to Leicester after that then we will have I believe some kind of FA Cup game I think that's not in the schedule yet, depending on our um, advancement. Chelsea-Arsenal on the 17th, and then that Ajax game, which is looking like it is going to be on the Tuesday, the 19th of March. So, lots of things to get our teeth into. Uh, Abdullah, thank you for joining me in finally doing this Myra Ramirez episode that we've been planning on doing for about a gazillion weeks. Um, <laughs> Appreciate it. We will be back with you after that Palace game. Um, we'll cover the, whatever happens in the Sunderland game as part of that. But until then, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high. <laughs>